Okay, well, thank you all for having this. Thanks to the organizers. Uh, it's sort of an unenviable task to follow someone as eloquent as John, who just had a, kind of a stirring presentation that you just saw. I actually take it very personally, because that first part he showed you there, that's where I went as an undergraduate and then did my graduate research. Nora was also in the room was there as well. We were there in 88 when it was still pristine. It's on our watch in our lifetime that you've seen what happened there. So I take this stuff very, very personally. I'm going to try to give you what I think is the only hope that we have to deal with some of these issues that John's talking about. And I want to talk about do parks work and an adaptive management approach. So, being an evaluation guy, I'm going to do a little pre-test, post-test exercise with you all. So, show of hands. Here's the question for the symposium. Do parks work? How many people here vote yes? How many people vote no? Even after John's presentation. <laughs> How many people vote? It depends. <laughs> ah, got okay, well, we'll come back to this. But I want to make an analogy. Do hammers work? It's a tool. Do hammers work? Well, a hammer works if you're trying to pound some nails. It doesn't really work if you want to bake a cake or make a phone call. And then it talks about what kind of hammer. Well, that's good for tacks. That's good for pounding concrete. That's better for pounding concrete. And so there's all kinds of hammers, there's all kinds of things about work means. And so when you ask, does a tool work, you have to ask, what is a hammer? What does work mean? And in what context is that hammer being used? And I want to make the same analogy for parks. What is a park? What are the goals of parks? And under what conditions are parks a useful tool? But I'm going to do a little bit of a digression. First, I want to introduce you to a more powerful tool called adaptive management. I'm going to do a digression about some tools to create adaptive management-based conservation science, and then about using adaptive management to determine the effectiveness of parks. So let's start with this first part. We think, a bunch of us who work on this stuff, think conservation practitioners need to be able to do a bunch of good things. See how biodiversity is doing, pick, pick tools that work, measure the impact of our actions, convince our bosses and supporters we know what the heck we're doing, and to learn from another systematically. In particular, which is this question of management effectiveness, which is if in your park you're doing education of school kids because you want to conserve gorillas, how the heck do you actually know whether that education's working? Is it a good thing to do? Is it a bad thing to do? How do you make it better? So we think one solution is something we call a conservation science based on adaptive management. What is adaptive management? Well, it's not just doing whatever you want. Some people think, hey, I can try something that fails, I'll tell my boss I'm adding adaptive. No, it ain't that. And it's not contrary to what Buzz Holling and a bunch of people used to write about, a bunch of ecological models and math models. So what we think adaptive management is, we went and looked at all these different fields, of business and education and international development, all these different fields where people have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty and in the face of complex systems. Don't be scared by this. This is the business world of how they do evaluation. It goes way back to the 1500s where people did double-entry bookkeeping. There's a whole series of accounting tools that people used. Or if you go to business school or go to Borders and read on the business shelf, you hear about Six Sigma and balanced scorecards and benchmarking. These are all tools that businesses use to gather information to make better decisions. We look similarly at the education and social science world. We look at the environmental conservation tree. I won't bore you with all the details. But what adaptive management is, based on all those different studies of things, is it's really about integrating design, management, and monitoring of your work to provide a framework for testing your assumptions, for adapting, and for learning. And so what adaptive management is, it's about combining research and action. If you have a pure practitioner, all they want to do is get stuff done. All they want to do is achieve things on the ground. A pure researcher, if such a thing exists, all they want to do is learn about this. They 
don't want to intervene. They kind of want to just be passive observer. Don't violate that scientific ethic. An adaptive manager is somewhere in between. They want to make action happen on the ground, but they also want to learn about why their actions work, why they don't work, and how they make them better. And so when we think about conservation projects, we like to think about what we call a generic model of a project, where you might have biodiversity that you care about, it's a, impacted by a bunch of threats. A project is taking action to change that situation. And in adaptive management, you really have to understand not just your bottom line impacts. If you care about gorillas, you can't just go measure those gorilla populations, how they're doing, because that doesn't tell you whether your actions are making a difference. But you can't just measure how many school kids you've educated, because again, what does it matter if you've educated 15 kids? You have to understand that link between your outputs, your outcomes, and the impacts that you're trying to achieve. And so what we've learned is, looking at all those different fields, adaptive management, in the 70s, people were doing evaluations at the end of a project or program. In the 80s and 90s, they were doing more participatory or formative evaluations. But everybody in all those different fields, somewhat independently, has moved on to project cycle-based monitoring getting information in the context of your project to make things better. There's lots of these different project cycles that are out there. You can take your pick. One that I've worked on is we put together a book a few years ago called Measure of Success. And it really involves going through these steps for an adaptive management cycle. So let me just take you a quick, simple example of what this might look like. Projects come in all sizes. It could be managing a small forest grove. It could be a national park. It could be work that a donor is doing. But really, let's say you're out in, this is kind of back in the marine theme, but you're managing a marine protected area out in the Pacific. What your first job is to do is define what it is that you're working on. You can then come up with a conceptual model of what's going on in that system. When I use the term model, it doesn't necessarily mean an academic exercise. You can do it with stakeholders on the floor of a hut. But you're seeing what is the biodiversity we care about? What are our targets? Maybe turtles and fish. What's affecting that biodiversity? Maybe the turtles are someone's dinner and there's commercial fisher people coming in. You model what are your targets? What are those threats to them? What are those drivers? So you have a picture of what's going on at your project site. Then we work with the project team to think about, well, how do they want to change that? They might want to set up a marine protected area to, to look at things, how, how things are going. So you set specific objectives, outcomes, and goals. Once you have that, you can have a series of strategies that you might be using, and then you can measure what's going on in that system. So your indicators come in, and all of a sudden, if I'm doing conservation education, I have to measure local attitude, I have to measure changes here, I have to measure changes here. That helps me detect whether that education of, of those fish stakeholders is actually making a difference. Then you actually have to implement your protected area. You have to go out and collect the information. Sometimes it may be outside scientists do the monitoring. Sometimes it may be project team members. You have to analyze the work. And here in this case, look, their hypothesis worked. They were setting up these small marine protected areas. It's sort of similar to that uh, abalone example we saw before. You set up a protected area, you have bigger clams and more of them in your site. People get all excited about that, and they really go on and extend their project work further. So adaptive management is about going through these steps in this process. And good adaptive management requires all of these steps. OK, now you all know what I mean by adaptive management. Let me go to the second part. I'm going to do a little bit of a digression about some work that a number of conservation groups are doing to set up an adaptive management-based conservation science. So I'm going to be talking on behalf of my organization, Foundations of Success, but also something called the Conservation Measures Partnership. It's a lot of large NGOs, uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society, WWF, both in the US and Europe, the Nature Conservancy, CI, African Wildlife Foundation, IUCN, this is a group of about 30 groups in the UK doing similar work. FOS is a small group I work for. We're kind of different than these other things, but because this is our field, we're part of this consortium as well. 
So one of the things that we found is each of our members had their own version of this project site. Don't worry about the details here. But when we looked at all, each of our different members' versions, we used words in very different ways. What one group called a target, another group called an outcome, another group called a landscape species. But all the same, it was all really the same concepts. So that was good. That let us develop what we're calling the open standards for the practice of conservation. No one owns them, anyone can use them. And what they are is a series of steps, principles, tasks, and guidance that we think every project or program needs to go through. So these are the steps in one of these cycle diagrams. It's just like that other cycle I showed you before. What factors, if we have these standards that we think every project or program needs to do, what factors promote best practice? Well, the first thing is you need standards that make sense to you. So these are some of these steps that we think every project or program needs to go through to lay out what their logic of what they're doing. I really emphasize that, for example, creating a conceptual model and going through that exercise of laying out what's in your site. We don't do this because we think it's fun. We do this because we've done it with hundreds and hundreds of projects around the world. We know it works in the Hudson River and Papua New Guinea and everywhere in between to get people to lay out what's going on at their project sites. We also need some support from leaders and donors to get these standards adapted. So one of the things that we've done is we've taken this generic cycle WWF, their network never had any standard practice. Every office had their own. They took those standards. This is now every WWF project around the world has to conform to these project or program standards. The Nature Conservancy, they used to have something called the 5S process. It had some of the elements, not all of it. They have now adopted conservation action planning. They're going and using the same systems. This is all TNC projects around the world. How cool is it that WWF and TNC, two competitors, have adopted the same kind of framework and even the same kind of graphics to show that they're kind of doing their version of it? The difference is, they want to call them basic practices, and there's you know, some, some slight differences. CI has its own framework. WCS, for those of you who know the Brock Zoo, they can't order their researchers to do anything, so they have to call them school tools and kind of not make them standards. But it's the same basic idea. And AWF has its own process. So what's happened among all these organizations is you have an initial cycle at TNC or West developed. It comes into here, WWF adopts it. They make incorporations and changes. It comes back here and is now being part of the version two of these CMP standards. So you have all these competitors, all these groups, agreeing on a common language and framework for how they want to work together. This is cool. The other thing we need is we need good training and outreach tools. So once you have those standards, how do you get people to use them? Well, all these groups have produced different guidance materials. There's courses and workshops that people offer around the world for projects. And I hate to do this to you Duke folks, but I have to say that even some universities, leading universities like your ACC rival Maryland, now has a course in adaptive management for conservation projects that uh, people are doing. So it's, it's something that's taught in universities now, something we can talk more about later. Another thing we're working on is software guidance. If you want people to adopt standards, any of you here use TurboTax to do your income tax? You know how TurboTax works? You start to stick the CD in, this friendly screen comes up and it walks you step by step through the complex process. We've just released a beta version of a software program that will take people through these CMP standards. It's called Marathi, and it walks you step by step through this process to doing these standards. Kind of gives you an interview, lets you help you rank your threads or develop maps and conceptual models of what's going on. It's still under development, but it's going to walk people through this process. Another part of this is this idea of standard nomenclature. Okay, if we want to have a conservation science, if you want to have biology, you need Linnaeus, you need field guides, you need taxonomies. Now what if you have a conservation project and that's your problem? You've got a bunch of cows sitting in your, in your, in your stream bed. If one group calls that cows, another group calls it cattle, another calls it livestock, another calls it grazing, another calls it ranching, these people can't find each other in a database. They can't learn from one another. So one of the things that we've done is, particularly for threats and actions, the CMP members, we got together and spent a year trying to hash out what are all the direct threats to conservation in the world. 
When we got done, we decided to discover IUCN had done the same thing. Said, oh, God. So the good news was 80% of what they had done was similar to ours. We were able to spend another six months with them. We now have what we call unified global classifications of threats and conservation actions. It's available online. You can see it just takes all the different kinds of threats that are out there, tries to categorize them, and have a common nomenclature and taxonomy for threats. Finally, where does this all lead? It leads to something we're developing called databases of projects. This is an example that TNC's developed, where if you can take all the TNC projects that are out there, you can sort on them, and then all of a sudden you can hunt, you can look through them and say, okay, I'm interested in hunting of bears. Now, the threat is hunting, I'm interested in a taxonomy of bears. You can now then go in using those standard taxonomies and find 12 projects in their database that all have hunting of bears. You can click further and you can get contact information about those people. You can get project descriptions, you can hear their threat summaries, objectives and the actions that they're taking, and what they've found. So what you finally have in this world is the potential for cross-project learning. People can find each other, they can learn from one another. We can also start to do analyses. What's the most common threat? Well, invasive species are really a global threat. 500 of the 800 TNC projects have those. So we're kind of trying to use this information to build this science. Hopefully this database will someday be searchable by location. So you can click here, find a park, find what's going on there, what are the threats, what are the actions, what's going on. Okay, so all of that equals the ingredients for the adaptive management of base conservation science. That's my digression, that was my commercial, okay? <laughs> Let's actually get to the point of this presentation, which is how do we actually use adaptive management to determine the effectiveness of parks? Well, my first question is, what is a park? Well, if we turn to the IUCN CMC classification of conservation actions, you can see that we've defined a park as actions to identify, establish, or expand parks in other legally protected areas and to protect resource rights. And in particular, it's site area protection, and then there's resource and habitat protection. So that's kind of a formal definition, if you will, of what is a park. But parks are funny, because I would actually park, and this is what you, John was alluding to in his presentation, you can designate a park on a map. You can say that this is a park, we set it up. But parks, in funny ways, are also biodiversity conservation projects. They're more like the projects that I was talking about before, where this is a small county park in Virginia along the Potomac River, but they, have, they can define their biodiversity targets, they can define a bunch of direct threats, and within that park, you have to take management actions. You may have to cull out invasive species, you may have to shoot deer, what, you may have to deal with neighbors, whatever you have to do. It's really fundamentally, a, a, it's, it's another way to say conservation project that has to go through this whole entire adaptive management process using a suite of other conservation tools to deal with the issues that may emerge in that particular park. So a park is both a strategy, but it's also a project. Everyone with me? Okay, what is the goal of a park? Okay, well, this is a typical project. People think, and I think I was really refreshed to hear the other speakers, and everyone's been mentioning it, you know, if you want to learn about conservation, don't learn about biology, learn about people. Well, here's a little test for you guys. People think about measuring the health of a park in terms of its biodiversity. So let's do a thought experiment. We have two identical pieces of forest out in Papua New Guinea. This one has a community living in one corner and they hunt through the whole damn thing. This one, no human being has ever set foot in this piece of land. Which is more conserved? B. What if I gave you, so I could set up, you know, do overflights and measure habitats and count monkeys, or not monkeys, but you know, uh, whatever would be in Papua New emus and things like that. This is pristine. If I gave you the one additional piece of information that next month the Malaysians were going to come and flatten that area. 
Okay, if I gave that one additional piece of information, even a month before, I can't go backwards here, but let's say it was showing that pristine thing, which would be more conserved? This one, where you have stakeholders who are guarding it and taking over it and mitigating threats and doing things to manage it, okay? So conservation is not just about the health of the biodiversity. It's also, if we go forward here, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this another time. Okay. So conservation is not just the health of the biodiversity, it's also the absence of threats, and it's the presence of stakeholders who can, who can take action and, and can mitigate future threats and detect things. So the goal of a park may be conservation, but you have to have to pay attention to all these other elements. But the, all right. There's also another element of this as well, which is this whole debate, should protect areas have multiple values? We did this cartoon a few years ago. Don't, I can read it here. Don't we have a moral obligation to set aside protected areas where we can conserve biodiversity for future generations and its own sake? Yes, but. Isn't it impossible to keep local communities out of protected areas? And isn't it immoral to deny them the right to use natural resources for economic development? Yes, but doesn't it become ethically imperative to develop community-based conservation projects to address both development and conservation needs? Yes, but isn't it true that community-based community conservation projects are trying to accomplish two mutually exclusive goals? Aren't we thus perpetually doomed to failure? Yes, but we set up parks. This has been the debate we've been doing for 15 years or 20 years. We're going in circles. They work, they don't work. They don't work, they don't work. Okay, we've got to stop this. <laughs> so, how do you deal with multiple clothes? Here's my little metaphor. Let's say you're sailing your park boat. This is your park body. And you're trying to reach the islands of conservation and development. If they're in the same place, it's pretty easy to know where to send your boat, what actions to take. But what if the, and even if the situation's like this, it's not that hard to figure out, at least for a while. But what if the situation's like that? Or in probably more like that, where you know, there's a general place you can go, but at some point you have to start making some decisions. You can't necessarily do both. Okay? So some kind of compromise is required. So one solution is just to pick one goal. You're going to say for parks, we're going to concern primarily about the natural world welfare. But what about the poor people? What about all this other stuff? Well, I'm sorry, do we ask, do we ask people who are doing malaria eradication? to then also deal with poverty alleviation? Do we ask people who are doing any other kind of, you know, curing cancer to worry about? I mean, at some point, you set up a charity or you set up a, a nonprofit to achieve a certain goal. That doesn't mean the other problems aren't important. But you have to focus on what you're trying to do and the values that are inherent. So one solution is to just sort of say, we're going to focus on natural world welfare. Does that mean we can ignore the poor stakeholders? No, because they're really influencing what's going on here. But we do have to talk about what our goal and what our aims are. The other solution is to perhaps understand the relationship between these goals, and I think we've heard this in some of the earlier presentations. For example, the natural world welfare, people might get more materials and food and services from coral reefs, but then as they get wealthier, and we see this in the developing countries, they need to protect it and get more ability to kind of preserve nature. And so what you see is human welfare here, it may be a function of people's need for food, land erosion, poor health, and illiteracy. If you're doing a literacy project, you might set up schools. If you're doing a health project, you might set up health clinics. But you can do conservation actions to ameliorate threats to biodiversity to save the coral reef, to help people get food, and to help them be protected from tsunamis. So you have to understand the context that you're going in. That's why you need this adaptive management to sort of understand that context and what's trying to happen. So, and then the last question, under what conditions are parks a useful tool? 
by creating a database of different park efforts, by all those things that I showed you about before, having standard taxonomy, all of these, we can actually learn what are the subsequent tools, under what conditions do parks work. A very obvious example that we've seen in John's presentation and the other ones is in the developed world, and you know, it's no coincidence some of those other, the marine ones, since the stuff in Australia seem to work, where you have good legal systems, where you have the ability to enforce things. Well, they, they seem to, you know, they seem to more or less have some potential for work. It can be a useful tool. Although you still have to worry about invasives and all those other problems. I was supposed to have one of John's slides here, but insert the Living Collins slide. In that place where you have anarchy, where you have, you know, political turmoil and things like that, I don't think parks are going to work very well. And it's just, it's just, we have to understand that maybe you do have to work with the local stakeholders or come up with other incentive-based structures for conservation. So I think if we put our minds to it, if we use adaptive management, we can try to figure out those conditions over time. So I'm going to leave you with sort of the three answers to the questions that I posed. Do parks, what is a park? They're a specific tool, but they're also a project representing a suite of tools. What should the goals of parks be? Well, I think they should be biodiversity conservation. If you're going to get into this multiple goal stuff, you better start thinking about understanding those relationships. And do they work? Well, we can determine the conditions where they work, where they're not going to work, and how to make them better. So let's do the little pre-test, post-test evaluation here. I'm going to ask the same question. How many people think parks work? None! How many people think no? None! Good job, guys! How many people think it depends, but adaptive management will help us learn how to make them more effective? Oh, good, good. If you want to find out more information, that's some of the other time.